Well, good morning. We are glad that you're here to worship with us this morning. And uh, um, today is a particularly good Sunday to worship together here at IBC. And the reason why is it's uh, the first Sunday of the month, which means that it is uh, our communion Sunday. And I forgot my elements. I got to take a pause. Even as I'm saying that, I forgot my elements there, but uh, that's okay. <clears throat> and so uh, we will, um, at the conclusion of our time around the scriptures, we'll transition into our time around the Lord's table, celebrating what Christ has accomplished for us. Now, we have been studying in this last section of the book of Ephesians in chapter 6, um, this very rich and detailed um, kind of exhortation to stand uh, in the strength that God provides, and the way that the apostle, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, would, would picture what it means for us to, to passively receive the power of God to withstand all that we will face in this life and beyond. He pictures it in the sense of putting on God's armor. And we need to make sure that we understand that that's exactly what it is. It is armor because there is a war raging around us, and at us. It, to, to be lulled into thinking that this life is for the enjoyment, um, for the consumption, for the delight, and for the goodness, uh, for everything that is excellent and enjoyable in this world, to think that that is the full expression of living is probably the first and most dangerous lie that the, the Christian could fall into. It is a time of war. It's not war physically. It's not, uh, it's not emotional war. It is a spiritual war. It's a war of evil against good, of those that are in the, in, in, you know, in, in the spiritual realm that is fighting to bring down those of faith who have committed themselves or have at least have professed the knowledge of Jesus Christ for the sake of living. It is a spiritual battle that we're engaged in. That's why we need armament. That's the come we need armor. But I also remind you that it's not just armor that we put on as if the emphasis is on what we do. The emphasis right, is on God's armor. It's his armor. The, the ability of the armor to protect us, to defend us, to fight for us, is the fact that it belongs to the Lord. This isn't manufacture your own armor so that you might fight well for every spiritual issue. This isn't figure out how to think better, how to outsmart, or to become better in terms of your own human ability and bootstrap your own religion. This is put on armor because there's war and put on this armor that is given to us of God because it is God's armor to help us to stand. And that's ultimately, in this last part of Ephesians, the climax of Ephesians is what Paul is trying to emphasize. Trying to say that with all the things that I've mentioned, with all the potential relational issues that you might have, with all the struggles that you might have with false teachers kind of contorting what is the truth of the gospel, with everything that rages around you, stand firm 
And that's where we pick it up. If you look at verse 14, I would like to read this section, verse, verse 14 to 17 again. And then we'll back up and we'll look at the last, um, last three of the six pieces of armor that are mentioned here. But in Ephesians 6, starting in verse 14, it says this. Stand, therefore, having fashioned on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Let's take some time to pray and then to look to the scriptures now. Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, by your grace we are able to hear the word. And that we might ask that the word might be implanted in our hearts that we might bear much fruit. Father, even as we look um, to this portion of scripture that speaks about things like truth and uh, righteousness, um, peace and faith and salvation, uh, when we hear all these things, Lord, it is easy for us to think of uh, distant ideas, things that are impractical, theoretical. But Lord, make these things real to our souls. Help us to understand that these are um, the very things that you've given to us so that we might live, so that we might do well, so that we might walk in this life in a manner that is worthy of the salvation um, that we are granted because of Jesus Christ. And Lord, on this first day of the month, as we celebrate the Lord's table, Lord, would it give us just encouragement to be reminded again and again of what Christ has accomplished for us that we might have life in him, forgiveness of sins, and know that there is so much more precious and eternal than we, what we have here and now. So, Father, help us to live in this life in a manner that's good and excellent, that blesses those around us. But, Lord, let us always keep our eyes towards the things that are of Christ and all that you will accomplish um, when you take us home to be with you. We praise you for your grace and ask that you would enable us in this time to understand your word well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we began last week in this, uh, in this section on, uh, on God's armor. Here we go. I guess it didn't work. Um, the belt of truth, right? Um, we said that uh, uh, the truth kind of girds us and kind of tucks in all the different stuff in our lives so that we might be able to move forward. The breastplate of righteousness is protective. Righteousness itself is a protection for us, right, to enable us to have confidence that we are protected and we're sealed by the righteousness with which we are covered because of Jesus Christ. The shoes of gospel peace, talking about how the gospel gives us peace and that gives us sure footing, makes us capable not just of moving forward, but of holding ground. And with all of those three in hand now, we go to number four. Hold it higher. Oh. If I was 7'3", that would work really well. Um, the shield of faith, we'll look at the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the spirit this morning. So turn, look at uh, verse uh, 16 as we pick this up, and you'll see that there's a, 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 just a sh subtle shift to kind of uh, let us know that we're talking about 
the same set of armor, but in a slightly different grouping. We began in verse 14 with stand, having fashioned, having put on, having put on, right, these different elements of, of God's armor. And as it has done that, it has emphasized, I think, um, the fastening or the putting on, placing it on your body, right, all of these things, a belt, a breastplate, um, shoes, right? Those are things that you actually fit yourself into. And here in verse 16, we pick it up and it says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. And so going forward, we're talking about things that now you have to pick up and hold. You have to carry into battle. I mean, I guess you could argue that the helmet goes on your head, so maybe you kind of wear it, right? But, the, but there's a slight transition to say that that was the first grouping and here's the second grouping. It is not to say that the second grouping is more significant there are different English translations for that, that first part, uh, in all circumstances. That's the ESV, in all circumstances. If you have the NIV, it says, besides all these things. And if you have the New American Standard, the later versions of the New American Standard, it'll say, in addition to all. And all of those are great, right? They convey that. If you have the old AV or the old NASB, it might say something that sounds like, you know, above all, as if these were greater than the former, and I just want to emphasize to you, depending on which, you know, which version you're looking at, that, that we're not talking about something that is better or more significant. We're talking about armament, and you need all of it. And it's just saying, in addition to all of these mentioned, here are some that you must also carry into combat. And the first is the shield of faith. Yes. First is the shield of faith. Thank you. Verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. We are to take up something that is a shield like the Roman shield. And the Romans had two kinds of shields, right? And the one that you're thinking of is like the Captain America shield. You strap it onto one forearm and then, you know, you're blocking stuff and stuff like that, right? That's, that's the small shield. But the other shield, the Thurion, um, it's named after Thura, which is a door. And if you can imagine, it's the large shield. It's the shield that stands about this high and about this wide. So you would carry it into battle, onto the battlefield, and you would make a wall, Right? You would stand there together, and then, you know, as the commander commands you, shields up, and then you guys would lean back, and then all these arrows would come flying down on you. In fact, the context of verse 16 tells us the kind of shield that Paul has in mind, not just by the word that he uses, which means the small door shield, the big one, right? But also that the point of this particular shield is that it would extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. In other words, whatever this shield is, it is meant to capture or to extinguish all the fiery flames that are coming by way of fire-tipped fire arrows. This is, this is the shield we're dealing with. So shield as a metaphor. As a metaphor for what? Well, it's a shield of faith. And with all of these, right, there is, there is a metaphor of something spiritually that Paul is imagining as part of your armor. He is saying that the shield that you need to fight off and to defend yourself against fiery arrows, this shield is your faith. Faith is the shield. That's, I think, the way that, that you know, this is constructed. 
faith, it becomes the shield. What, is, what does faith mean? Well, faith is much more than intellectual assent. It's not just that I believe a thing exists. But it, it, as the scriptures describe it, it is the conviction that something is true. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, now faith is the assurance of things that are hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In other words, it's not just that you, you think or that you assent or that you'll sign off on or you'll raise your hand to the testimony that there is a God and that he has a son and that he sent his son to die for people's sins. That's not bad. That's good. Our, our children in children's church could probably tell us that. And that's, that's a good thing that they could tell us that. But that in itself does not mean that they have trusted, right? They have placed their whole being on the weight, on the evidence of what God has spoken to be true. John Patton, that great missionary to the, to the New Hebrides, right? Those uh, South Seas Island uh, cannibals, um, at one point, there's a story where he is trying to translate the scriptures, and he's, he's looking for a word that means faith. Be, because the, the cannibals, right, they don't have a word for faith. And so as he's thinking about it, a villager, a friend, comes running into his office and sits down in the chair and says, man, it is good to rest my whole weight on this chair. Light bulb, right? John Patton realizes that's the word. It's, it's the word that means to rest your whole being on something, right? To place, place all of yourself into the sufficiency of something. And so that becomes, in their language, the word for faith. And it's a good way to translate what we're trying to capture. We don't just mean that you say, yes, I think that that's probably true. We mean that, yes, I believe it with all my heart, with my being. I trust in the truth of the gospel, and I trust in the person of Jesus Christ. The point is that if you were to take up the shield of faith, you're trying to appropriate our faith in God and in Christ and what he's accomplished for us. It is about confidence in trusting the living God. Let me see what faith looks like in the book of Ephesians. And there's a couple of verses in there for you. For Ephesians 1.13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. So um, believing, faith, comes with the assurance that we are now promised, or we are, uh, sorry, we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. So faith has been the, the instrument by which we have now come to faith, right, by grace in, uh, in salvation in Jesus Christ. It is the gift of God, not anything that we have accomplished. Next slide, right? Um, Ephesians 3, 11 and 12, this was according to the eternal purpose that was realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So there, faith has given us, granted to us, a bold, confident access to our Savior, Jesus Christ. We can enter into a relationship with him confidently and gladly, not because we deserve it, not because we have cleansed ourselves so well, but because of what he has done for us. By faith, we have his nearness and a boldness to approach our living God. Verse um, 
verse 16 and 17 of that same chapter 3, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, right? And it goes on to speak of all the other blessings that we have in all of this through faith, that Christ may indwell us through faith. So Ephesians has talked a lot about what faith is already and the accomplishments. We are sealed because of faith, by faith, right? Um, with the promise of the Holy Spirit. We have confidence that, that we can approach the living God because of faith. We have Christ indwelling us because of faith. All of this comes by way of faith. So the shield of faith or the shield which equals faith Paul is saying, metaphorically speaking, this is the value of faith in your life. And in particular, he wants to draw our attention to the fact that this large shield has the capacity of extinguishing all the flaming darts of the evil one. So um, during uh, the times of war in the Roman Empire, um, what you would often do if, you know, enemies are approaching is you begin, right, with an aerial assault. You, you start, you know, shooting arrows at the, at the enemy. And the clever ones would often, you know, take some kind of uh, cloth or something, soak it in pitch, and light it on fire just as they're shooting the arrows. And when the arrows hit, the bits of, like, you know, of pitch that are on fire, they would spread. It would splatter. So even if it didn't hit you directly, it would start to hit somewhere and start burning some of the soldiers and cause mass panic, right? It's, it's a clever right, tactic in terms of uh, military warfare. And what Paul is doing is he's speaking of that, and he's, he's speaking of these flaming arrows, which would include for us every spiritual difficulty, every temptation to ungodliness, every moment of doubt or insecurity, every every. Every leaning into things that are not true, but that we're tempted to believe in a moment because we are dissatisfied with how life is going. All of those temptations are the fiery arrows. But let, let me paint this picture for you better, right? Okay, so imagine we're on a Roman battlefield. We are all lined up. We have our Thurians, and the commander says, take up your shield. What you should not expect is one soldier running up and then taking a shot at you and then running back, and then another soldier coming out and then taking the shot at you and running back. It's not one or two arrows occasionally. No, no, in a, in a frontal assault, when the arrows are flying, the idea is you are trying to darken the sky with the number of arrows that come, right? You are trying to fill, right, the sky in a barrage of fiery of fiery darts that will come screaming down from all directions. And that's why you need to hide behind something like this huge Thurion. So if you take that image, it's a beautiful one. And not beautiful as in it's a good thing, right? Beautiful in the sense that Paul is so creative. He is trying to say, what does it look like when you're spiritually under attack? Well, it doesn't look like Satan tempts you with one small thing here. And then, oh, it didn't work. I'll come back in a few weeks and I'll tempt you one small other thing here. In his cleverness, he comes with the full barrage. It is as if the sky is darkened and only fire is hailing down upon us. See, that's the, that's the fiery darts, right? 
That is the storm of, of fire that is coming down, that is called down from the enemy. That's why in that moment, what do you need to do? You need to hide behind faith. You need to know what you know. You need to lean into and trust in the things that scripture has revealed about who God is. The idea is that faith is so essential because regardless of what is coming and how fast it's coming and how much of it is coming, it, it always feels, right, that expression, when it rains, it pours. Well, actually, the last couple of days, it hasn't poured. It's just kind of sprinkled rain, right? But you understand the expression. The expression means that when there is one thing that is difficult, it seems there is at least five other things that compound it. And you know that from your own experience. Church, we know that even from all the stuff that's been going on in our members, right? Whether it's one person whose illness we are praying for and then another person who, who gets, you know, um, a diagnosis of something now that we're praying for that person gets hospitalized. A person gets this. And then, and then, you know, our, our grandparents or our parents, um, right. They're getting injured or sick and passing away. I mean, it's like, it's never just a single, let me just throw one rock at you. It is a barrage. When it rains, it does pour. What, how do we stand against stuff like that when we have temptations thrown at us because of our various desires, our, our lusts, our inordinate desires that can, that can trip us up? When we have trials, when financially maybe we lose our job, there's financial distress or there's physical illness, there's unfortunate tragedies, right? Like all these things are happening. When there's deception that abounds, when there's a deluge of things that give us false hopes or counterfeit forms of godliness or tempt us to trust in ourselves, when all of these are taking place and all of this volley is coming against us, well, how do we stand? And this is Paul's way of expressing this so well. You stand behind your shield of faith. You stand behind your faith in what you know that God has accomplished in Jesus Christ. This is not you figure out how to make a shield. This is you trust in the God who is able to shield you. That's what faith means. I like how Charles Spurgeon puts it when he's describing what faith is. He says, why is faith so essential? Is because it it's receptive power. A purse will not make a man rich, and, without, and yet without some place for his money, how could a man acquire wealth? Faith of itself could not contribute a penny to salvation, but it is the purse which holds a precious Christ within itself. It holds all the treasure of divine love. See, it is our faith that is our shield. Faith is a shield to the Christian soldier. It gives him protection against all the fiery assaults of the evil one. Temptations will come. Trials will come. Temp you know, temptation to deception and to falsehood, they will assail. These will all come and we will stand if we stand behind the truth of God, his word, and what he has spoken. Faith is a shield against a sky that is darkened with fire that is, mount, that is meant to overwhelm and consume us. And we are to appropriate faith as if it is our wholehearted protection. How do we do that? Well, I think it means that we are to, to trust in God wholeheartedly. 
Not, not just in his being, not just in his existence, not just in the catechism that we may have learned, but in the fact that God is and absolutely deserves our absolute trust, our full wholehearted trust, that he is worthy of that. Another verse maybe to share with you, maybe as a final thing on that. Well, there, there you go. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Listen to this, right? This is from the Proverbs It is to give us Salamic wisdom. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make make straight your paths. We are are to trust in the Lord with all of our heart, with all of our being. We are to lean in when we feel like, Lord, I'm not sure I can lean in on you. Well, then you are to, in that moment, choose to lean in. And you are to do that and not lean on your own understanding, your own way of figuring things out, your own way of understanding how to do this. Because in everything that you do, in all your ways, we are to acknowledge our God and what he has done. And for new covenant believers like us, we are to acknowledge God and what he has done in Jesus Christ unto salvation to make our paths straight. To live by faith means to choose to trust in God, right? Instead of choosing to panic, panic is a natural. Can you imagine being on a battlefield, especially your first time, and then, you know, the enemy is up on the, you know, I don't know, the towers or the wall of their city, and you're all stationed outside, and then you just hear fire, and then you just hear the sky just darken with arrows coming? The, the, the temptation would be to panic, to flee, to go find some place where you can run away. But what we are given is enough to stand. We have faith, and we are to place that faith, that wholehearted trust in the person that is always faithful, right? This is how we take up, we take up um, the shield of faith with which we can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. The next one we look at, right? Shield of faith, helmet of salvation. Take a look at verse 17, the first part, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The helmet of salvation. So here, now it's to take up then the helmet, which is the helmet um, that is equivalent to salvation. Again, I draw your attention to the fact that this is a, this is a imagery that Paul borrows from Isaiah 59 about Yahweh, the God, the warrior who rescues us. And there in Isaiah 59, 17, it says, he, speaking of Yahweh, Put on righteousness as a breastplate, sounds familiar, and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. There, God is pictured as the victorious warrior who wears the helmet of salvation because he is bringing salvation to his people. Here, in Ephesians 6, Paul uses that same illustration to say that we receive his helmet of salvation for our protection. You get it? So in Isaiah, the helmet of salvation is what God does. He comes to save his people. Here in Ephesians, the helmet of salvation is what he gives. He says, now you wear this helmet and it'll be protective for you. I don't, I don't think I have to say a lot about helmets. They, they're either made of leather or metal. And we think about the metal ones because they look cooler right? And, uh, and they protect against almost anything, but like a huge war hammer or an ax or like people, the cavalry riding by and like 
trying to swipe off people's heads, right? That's, that's, that's what the, the metal helmets were to protect against. And, and I mean, we have modern versions of that, right? Whether you're talking about, you know, baseball where you have to wear, a, you know, a helmet, um, you know, which, which makes sense because some of these guys could throw over 100 miles per hour and you catch one in your head. I think you go be with the Lord. I think that's it, right? It, that's crazy, right? In hockey, they wear helmets because, well, not only because they like to fight, which is all right. That's part of the sport, right? But, right, but because ice is as hard or harder than concrete. Uh, some of our college guys went to play broomball, and you guys discovered, right, how hard ice is. And, and you know, not a, a lot of friction to keep your ground, right? And so they need helmets. There's a time when they're transitioning. Like, this is like 15 years ago. Um, hockey NHL was transitioning from, you know, mandatory, you have to wear helmets. And the old school guys that were around before, that grandfathered in, and they're the guys flowing around without helmets. Like, they're, they're madmen, right? Like, that's really dangerous. Or can you imagine playing football without a helmet, right? Guys are like, I don't know, average weight of linebackers, about 230 pounds or so, and they could run like a, I don't know, 4, 6, 40, right? That's on the slower side for some of them. Running at full speed. And I can't do the conversion, right? I think it's like force equals mass times accelerate. Those guys accelerate and they're heavy. They could kill you if you weren't wearing a helmet and they got you square in the head, right? Even with helmets, they make you like not hit each other in the head in their helmets because it's dangerous. So, I mean, I started by saying I wasn't going to say much about helmets, but helmets are important, right? That's the point. And the helmet is equivalent to salvation. Salvation is our helmet. It is our protection, but here it is also our confidence. There's something about if you played football or, you know, you're going into a hockey game. I'm looking around. I'm imagining none of you guys have gone into a hockey game in the middle of a match, right? Like if, you're, if you put on a helmet as you step into the arena, there's something about you feel much more protected. Can you imagine if you are going up to bat and you know this guy's a flamethrower and, you know, like let's, let's keep it more at our level. This guy could throw like 89 miles per hour, which is crazy fast, right? And he's a little wild. And then your coach says or, or your manager says, hey, get in there and then uh, try to get a hit. But um, just to warn you, we're, we're out of helmets. I, I think I would lose confidence, right? And then he says, I, I'm going to call for a bunt, you know, whatever the sign for bunt is, right? right? And then I'm thinking, dude, I, I'm going to bunt like this, man. I don't want to get in front of that, right? Especially without a helmet. There's something that gives confidence and protection from the fitting of the helmet over your head. Well, if salvation, right, is that helmet for us, then we should consider, well, how has, how has Paul used the idea of salvation in the book of Ephesians? There's a lot we could go to, but we're just going to look at just, just one in particular, right? Um, that is in, there we go. That's in Ephesians 2, verse 5 and 6. Even when you were dead in your trespasses, we were made alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So um, there, using the perfect passive participle, that's kind of cool, right? Perfect passive participle, three Ps, right? It sounds good. It, it, that we have been saved. It, it, the, the idea is that we were saved and we continue, right, in that Status. We continue to stay in that place of having been saved. It is done. 
And so Paul, throughout Ephesians, that's not the only place he uses that term. In fact, you know, 2, 8, and 9, he'll use that term again. But the idea being that it is done. Salvation is accomplished. We have been raised from death to newness of life. This is the helmet that we are to place upon us for protection and confidence. The helmet is our salvation, that we have been rescued by the grace of God through the death and resurrection of Jesus, and that is done. That is protection for us. That is confidence for us. We don't lose our salvation. And as a result of that, it's the reminder that it is always on, right? A couple of things I want to say about that. The helmet of salvation is like a security blanket, right? When things get rough. You know, I, I love football. And part of the reason I think I like football is because there are these like amazing human beings in terms of their physical abilities flying at each other, trying to take each other's head off, Right? But, but all within the guidelines of, like, this being a sport. And um, in particular, if you watch football players, sometimes there's, like, these huge violent collisions. Bam! And you could hear it all the way. You could hear it through the TV. You could hear it through the stands, right? And you're like, ooh! And the whole crowd is, like, ooing because it's such a strong hit. And as the guys get up, the first thing they do, they start to adjust their helmet. It gives them a sense that everything's okay. Like, man, I don't know what's going on, but if I adjust my helmet, like it's still there, my head's still here, like everything is still working, right? It's just kind of the natural thing that you do after, you know, your bell is rung, you get up and you kind of grab your face mask, shake your helmet, you give yourself the assurance that everything is still in place. And, and that I think the idea of that, right, that when things get particularly bad, that we lean back on our salvation, is it's almost like kind of shaking the helmet to make sure that we are all in one piece, that we are all still the same person that we were or that we are because of who Christ is, that our salvation reminds us that we are settled, our eternal destiny is settled, so then let me kind of get my bearings, let me shake off this rough patch or this difficulty or this pain or this struggle and get up off the ground and be reminded that when things get rough, this is my helmet and protection and confidence. I am still saved, not because of my willpower, not because of my, you know, my absolute obedience. I'm saved because of who Christ is and what he has done for me, all right? Secondly, I think the helmet, which is salvation, right, is also our salvation is the evidence that God will not ever forsake or abandon us. Romans, on oh, the next one, Romans Romans 8.32, passage that many of us have memorized because it is so good and true. He, speaking about God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God the Father was willing to give up his own son to save us from our sins, to save us, will he not provide for us whatever is needed? for the continuation of our salvation and our life in Christ? Will he not give us everything that is necessary and needed? He gave up the best. He gave up the most. Is there some reason to doubt his generosity or his thoughtfulness or his grace or his mercy or his love towards us? The whole point of Romans 8.32 is, is to say, look at your salvation and what God has done in Christ for you. 
So then gain confidence that if he has done that for you, if you truly are redeemed by the blood of Christ and you've committed your life to him, will he not graciously give you anything and everything necessary until he brings you home? He will never forsake or abandon you. That is confidence that comes by the helmet, which is salvation. Third, the helmet of salvation, it's almost like an assurance that we will make it to the end. And the next verse is uh, Philippians 1, 6. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Salvation brings us a confidence, right? That the one that has begun that good work in us will complete it. If you're not the one that began that good work, then it's not dependent on you to, to finalize that. It's the Lord that has done that work in you to grant to you salvation by grace through faith. And so he will see it through. Look, there's going to be moments when you're wondering, like, Lord, like, man, I, look how messed up my life is. Where do you go when you feel so low that you feel like, man, I have messed up so much. I have, uh, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to think about my life, my position in you. You remember the basis of our salvation is not whether or not you have done enough. The basis of your salvation is whether or not Christ has done enough. And the answer to that is always yes. If you have genuinely repented of your sins and placed your faith in Christ, and you said, Lord, I'm undeserving of anything good that you have given to me. But I'll rely solely and absolutely on your goodness to me. And the fact that you could eradicate and wipe away my sins once for all. And I will follow you for all of eternity. And then that salvation protects you. If you are struggling now, if you're fearful, if you're lacking confidence, it's time to make sure the helmet is adjusted. Make sure that's on there right. Make sure that you understand what salvation is again and that you're leaning into the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember the depth and the width of your salvation already won in Christ. A salvation that will culminate in eternal victory. One last verse from this section. There you go. 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his great mercy he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. You hear the words of scripture that we lean into our salvation and that becomes then a helmet for us. Paul is saying this is the metaphor. You have something that protects your head, right? That grounds you, that gives you confidence that, that you, are, you are okay and that the Lord has you and that confidence, that helmet, spiritually speaking, metaphorically speaking, is the truth of your salvation. So then we have the shield, which is our faith, we have a helmet, which is our salvation. And then we have the sword of the spirit, right? There we go. Sword of the spirit in the second part of verse 17. Verse 17 said, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The word for sword in the New Testament, uh, there's a couple of different words, but this is the makaria. This is, uh, um, this is the short sword, all right? Um, this is a... Uh, um, 
my brother and I watched the, the second Dune movie. And, you know, they're cool because they all fight with, like, these, these short sword dagger kind of things. That's exactly what this is. So Romans, right, like, I, you know, sometimes they, they pour the big old double-handed, right, broadswords that they kind of sweep widely at people. But this, this is the skill instrument. It's a short sword, sometimes referred to as a dagger for cutting and stabbing, kind of brutal, I, I know. But it's a precise instrument of war. It required skill and precision to utilize to its full potential. Do you get that? I think Paul is particular about why he calls the word of God the sword of the spirit. One, he calls it a sword, a short sword, right? To say that this is a skill instrument. It requires skillfulness. It, is, it has very clear capacities. Some scholars have said that it is a, um, it is a um, um, combined this with Hebrews 4.12, I'll show you Hebrews 4.12, right? For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The idea is that the word of God can slice that which is otherwise unsliceable. It could get to those things. So you combine the imagery of the word of God being so sharp and double-edged and this short sword that is in, in Ephesians 6, and you get this idea of almost a scalpel, right? That you could do that surgery, that it is such a precise instrument that it could do stuff that we in our human abilities, accomplishments, and skills cannot possibly do. And it is the sword, the scalpel, the short sword, the skill instrument of warfare, it is a sword of the spirit. It is a spirit that has capacity, right, to do these things. And the word of God is often connected with, uh, with the spirit of God. Second Peter, 2, um, 2 Peter 1, verse 20 and 21 says that, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from one's own interpretation. It's not an issue of how you want to interpret it or how like the New Testament writers decided to interpret stuff. It's not human opinion that makes the word of God. For no prophecy, according to 2 Peter 1.21, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. There's a synergism. There's a working of the Holy Spirit through the authors of Scripture. And that's the come we talk about the inerrancy of Scripture in its original autographer. When the Holy Spirit moves that writer to use his personality, his vocabulary, etc., to write the words of Scripture, it is exactly what God had intended it to be. This is the sword of the Spirit, meaning it's the sword that is empowered or finds its source in the Spirit of God. This is the God sword, meaning the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, it imbibes this sword for great effect. And that sword sourced in the Holy Spirit's power, Paul says, this is the word of God, the sword of the spirit, which is God's word. Maybe the only thing that's kind of interesting here, here is that word for word, right? It's rhema. Not logos. If it was logos, we take it generally as God's word, the totality of the argument of scripture, right? The statement of the entire communication. But here, it seems to be an emphasis on the particulars. It's like when in Matthew 4 4, Jesus says, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word, every rhema, 
that comes from the mouth of God. The idea seems to be that, that although the entire scripture is true as logos, as the word, there's individual scriptures which bring to our, um, to our time of need the exact word that is appropriate and helpful. And that's the idea, that the sword of the spirit has the capacity to bring the particular word, the particular portion of scripture, the particular thoughts of God to bear on our struggles, on our fight, in our, in our difficulties. The word of God will say a few things about this. One, that is divinely sufficient, right, when it's equipped. Take a look at the next verse. 2 Timothy 2, 13 through 16, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Sufficiency comes not from ourselves, but from our capacity to understand and to apply God's word. The word of God is sufficient, right, to equip us for every need. This is the word of God, which is the sword empowered by the Holy Spirit himself. Next, the word of God is blessed and brings blessing, especially when we meditate upon it, right? Psalm 1, and you guys know Psalm 1 well probably, verses 1 to 3. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. See, it's not just that he knows the word of God. He delights in it. And it's not just that he delights in it, but he delights in it because he meditates upon it regularly. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. See, the opening statement is blessed is the man, but then the rest of it is an explanation of how he has come to be blessed. And it's because he delights in and meditates on God's word, and that results in prosperity. That he is doing well because he has stored up, thought about, meditated on the word of God. That's the power, right? It's the sword of the spirit. The sword of empowered by the Holy Spirit and it is the very word of God that is able to do anything and everything and impossible things because it is God's word. Third, Psalm 119, 9 through 11. How can a young man keep his way pure? My gracious, what a good question to ask. How, how do we as young people, right, maintain our purity? And it says this, by guarding it according to your word, with my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your 